I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. We're not doing a special Mother's Day message. In fact, you could probably do a little bit better uh, when it comes to passages specifically about mothers. Maybe you'll see why. Uh, we won't talk about it too much. Um, but the reason why we're going to 2 Samuel and we're in chapter 3, the reason why we're here is because we're doing a series through this book. And we started this series actually last year uh, in 1 Samuel. We finished that at the end of last year, beginning of this year. And we're continuing the story in the second half of uh, the story of Samuel. And we're calling the second half in 2 Samuel, King of Kings. Now at Zoe, one of the reasons why we just walk through the Bible is because we believe that the Bible is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the only thing that can cut through the shallowness of mere religiosity, getting actually to our hearts, to who we really are inside. And if you've been here with us through these books of Samuel, you know that Samuel in particular, maybe, these books, these passages, these texts, they cut pretty deep. Now we're in chapter 3 of 2 Samuel. David has just been crowned king of Judah. But there are 11 other tribes in Israel, and they are still under the power of the house of Saul. They are against David. But though it is Saul's last remaining son, Ishbosheth, who technically wears the crown of this majority kingdom, everyone knows, everyone who's in the know knows that the real power behind the throne is the late King Saul's cousin, Abner. Blood has been shed, and we pick up the story as this war is going on between the two houses. So we'll look at verse 1, we'll read to verse 21, we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. Okay, so Second Samuel 3, let's look at verse 1. Let me read the text. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel. And his second, Kiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith. And the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithream of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. Verse 6, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Isbosheth said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Isbosheth and said, am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fall concerning a woman. God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Verse 12. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me. And behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Isbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michal, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Isbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Baharim. And Abner said to him, go return. And he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, for some time past, you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. This is the word of God. Let me pray for us and then we'll get into it. Let's pray. 
Father, we know that this is your word. That these words we just read are not just from an ancient book, but they are the very words of the living God. And God, I pray that you would do something that only you can do, that you would change our hearts, that you would speak to us inside. And God, I know that I don't have the power to change anybody, so we look to you. And God, I pray for every single person here. God, with all the distractions that we have in our lives, different priorities, things going on after church, even things going on right here. Father, I pray that you would sit us down at your feet. And I pray, God, that we would seek to listen to your words. The one thing that is necessary. God, use this time, please, in our hearts and for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever been called out? I have many times, actually, and you've heard about a few, and you'll probably hear about all of them as time goes on if you stick around. I'm sure uh, some of them will make you laugh at my expense. But what I specifically mean by this isn't just that someone corrected you or as someone rebuked you or anything like that, but has there ever been a time when someone saw through your actions to your true motives underneath. Maybe you were being sneaky. Or maybe you were being a little manipulative. I think sometimes we all do this in small ways. Maybe we offer a false compliment to somebody to kind of flatter them, even though we don't really mean it. And then they knew, right? They knew that you were lying or you weren't being sincere. All I'm asking is, has anyone ever seen through you? Have you ever had that experience? There's an old preacher's story that goes something like this. This is kind of my spin on it. But anyway, once upon a time in a faraway kingdom, there was a gardener, a farmer, and he grew carrots and other vegetables. And one day he grew the biggest, greatest carrot that he had ever seen in his life. The greatest carrot of all time, the goat of carrots. So he takes this carrot and he brings it all the way to the palace of the king and he presents it to the king as a gift. And this is what he says. He says, my king, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. And I want to give it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. And the king, discerning the genuineness of the gardener's gift, thanked him warmly. And the gardener turned around to go home. But then the king said, hold on. You are clearly a gifted gardener, a good steward of your land. I own much land right near where your farm is And as a token of my appreciation and love and respect for you, I would like to give all of that land that I own to you. So you can farm it, so you can grow even more carrots. And the gardener was surprised and delighted, and he went home overjoyed. He never expected anything like this. Now, there was a nobleman who was in the king's court. He was there every day. And he saw and overheard everything that just went down. And he said, wow, if that's what you get for just a carrot, Imagine if you bring something a little bit better than a carrot. So the next day, the nobleman sought an audience with the king. And just as the gardener brought his carrot, he brought a gift as well. He brought a black stallion, one that he had raised himself. He bowed before the king and said, my king, this is the greatest horse that I have ever bred or ever will breed. And I want to give it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. And the king, with a polite thank you, took the horse. And that was it. And they're standing there and they're looking at each other. And the nobleman is waiting. And he's waiting. And the king's just looking at him, smiling. And this goes on for an uncomfortable few minutes. So finally, the nobleman turns to leave, confused, but still hoping maybe that he'll be called back or something. And then finally, the king, who was no fool, who had correctly discerned the nobleman's heart, finally spoke up. He said, you are clearly a good horse breeder. Just as the gardener is a good gardener. And I am truly thankful for this gift that you've given me. However, you tell me if this is true or not. That gardener, when he came and he brought that carrot, he was thinking only about what he wanted to give. But when you showed up today, after hearing what went down yesterday, you were thinking only about what you wanted to get. Have you ever had somebody look right through you? Now consider the story for just a moment. The nobleman not only brought a gift to the king, okay? Understand this. Like the gardener, he brought a gift, 
He also used the exact same words, basically. This is the greatest thing I ever created, etc. I want to give it to you as a sign of my token, or as a token of my appreciation. And yet, even though he gave a gift and basically followed the script, the king saw right through him. And what this illustrates is that even though what you do is important, and it is very important, it's not all that there is. It's not everything. And I think you guys know this in your mind. You know that you can't just go through the motions in life, that it's not enough at the end of the day. And yet we're all tempted to believe otherwise because usually the truth is you can get by by going through the motions in certain things. We get used to it. When the focus is only on what you do, you can usually kind of wing it. People generally accept correct actions. And you see it in marriages that are just going on autopilot, for example. Right? You come home every day at the same time, you eat dinner, you talk about your day, and everything seems good and fine and great. Nothing's broken. You can't even tell from the outside that the love has completely evaporated. You don't find out until, you know, 30 years, after 30 years of the same routine, all of a sudden one of them files for divorce or there's an affair or something falls apart. As long as you show up, you can mail it in at work without getting fired a lot of times. Kids, you probably have figured this out already, but as long as you obey on the outside, you agree to go to church with your parents, you don't use bad language, at least around them, most parents will leave you alone. And if you didn't know this, sorry, I just told you what to do. Happy Mother's Day to you mothers. I'm not trying to undermine anybody here. I'm just trying to speak what's real. And of course, we're at church. You're here at church on a Sunday afternoon And the thing about church is, the thing about religion in general, but especially, I think, for us who come to church regularly, we can be drawn into focusing too heavily on mere behavior modification, right? You know the old Baptist saying, right, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't go with girls that do, right? And as long as you don't do those things, then people will view you as an upstanding Christian person. We have all these unspoken rules in church. And then we're shot out of our minds when a scandal comes to light or a seemingly fine marriage just seems to explode like I talked about. And the, and the reason is we lost sight of the reality that it's about more than just actions. People act fine on the outside, but what's going on in here? The truth is motive, motives matter. We can forget God sees right through us. Now, why, I don't know what happened here, but uh, let's put this away. This scene, if you're paying attention. What does this have to do with 2 Samuel 3? We read the passage. doesn't seem to have anything to do, really, with parenting or church or anything like that. Well, we're in 2 Samuel 3, and like I said, we're early on in the second half of the story in this book. But things are moving, okay? Things have been moving. If you've been with us, you know that David finally has a kingdom of sorts, And his kingdom has begun in earnest. Even though he's not king of all Israel yet, he's king of Judah. He leads one tribe, one of the larger tribes. And now Israel is in the midst of this civil war where the house of Saul and the house of David are battling for supremacy. Who is going to lead God's chosen people? There's no clear path so far that we've seen toward a unified, peaceful kingdom. It's kind of a stalemate. And in this little section we're in, end of chapter 2, Uh, and most of chapter 3, the book actually does something interesting, which we might not expect. The camera, even though it's been focusing on David all this time, it moves away from him for a little bit. The camera shifts its focus away from David and focuses on these other people, especially this guy named Abner. And this is very important, actually. Because you have to understand, God's will, okay, understand this, God's will is for David to be king. So when we look at these other people in the story, how they respond to David, what they think about David, how they react when David's kingdom is starting, what we see here is a picture of how people react to God's will. In Abner especially, we see what it looks like for someone to have to wrestle with God's will, to have to respond to God's kingdom And last time we saw him openly rebel against God, but this time we see something different. And I think in some ways this is even more 
Interesting. It takes us a little deeper. It kicks us down a notch into the deeper parts of the heart. This time we see Abner turn to the kingdom, actually, outwardly. But inwardly, he has questionable motives. And this shines the spotlight really on our own hearts. It forces us to question our own motives. And I won't sugarcoat it. This is kind of a challenging text. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but just warning you because you might have expected some like Mother's Day message. But no, we don't do that here. But still, we have a gift for you at the end. So let's get into it. Let's get into it. We'll look at this text in three parts under three headings as we do. And even though it is challenging, I think at the end of it, I think you'll be led by the word of God to a good place. So first, the sons, the switch, and the servant. First, the sons, the sons, which points us to the uncomfortable truth that in our hearts, we kind of all want to be kings. Look at verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Last chapter, we saw this battle, and really the first battle between these two rival kingdoms, and it was one-sided. The house of David dominated. David's army under Joab, his general, wiped the floor with Ishbosheth's army under Abner. Now, Ishbosheth, in case you're wondering who that is, that's Saul's last remaining son. All of his other sons are dead. And he is the one who is basically the last remaining hope for the house of Saul. And this term is important, the house. Okay, the house. Look at the text. The war is not just between David and Saul or David and Ishbosheth or Joab and Abner. The war is between the house of Saul and the house of David. Two families, two potential dynasties. And this helps us to understand why the text even takes us where it takes us. Look at verse 2. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel. And his second, Kiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith. And the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithream of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. I had to look up an audio Bible on YouTube and listen to it to make sure I could pronounce all these names for you guys because I knew I had to read it twice. The thing is, why is this even in here? I'm sure when I was reading it, you're like, okay, what is this even about? Why does the text take us here? There's this kind of interesting story about this battle, this political and military battle between these two kingdoms. There's drama, and then it stops us dead in our tracks, stops the story, and just focuses on this list of hard-to-pronounce names. Why do we need to know who, who David's kids are? Who cares? Well, look at how the list is constructed, first of all. It's not just trivial biographical information. First of all, it's just sons who are listed. Do you see that? Only sons. Now, David has daughters too, but they are not listed. And if you're paying attention, you probably noticed as well that for each wife, and we'll talk about that in a second, for each wife, only one son is listed. Now, look at verse 2 again. What is specifically noted about Amnon? That he is who? He is David's firstborn. See, in those days, in that culture, the firstborn was extremely important. Birth order was everything. The firstborn was the heir of the family business, of the family estate, of the family fortune. And that was just for normal people. So if you're a king, the firstborn, you got to understand, is the guy who is going to be the next king barring disaster. Amnon, this list is telling us, is heir to the throne. And everyone else is the firstborn of their respective mothers. And the way this list is constructed, it's showing us that these are the potential heirs of David's house. This is David's budding dynasty. See, the house of a king was only as strong as its son. Saul's gone. He only has one son left. Look how weak he is. Look how perilous the situation is. If somebody kills Isbosheth, God forbid, then Saul's done. That's it. But for David, he has all these guys lined up. If something happens to Amnon, well, then you got the next guy, and then you got the next guy, and the next guy. See, it's not just about military strength, though that's a huge part of it. It's about dynastic potential. So from a certain perspective, David isn't just winning. He's dominating this war. But that's just from one perspective. See, you might have a question, okay? 
And we've talked about this before. Unfortunately, we have to talk about it way more than I want to talk about it. But let's talk about the elephant in the list, polygamy. I know it's your favorite thing to talk about on Mother's Day. What's up with David having so many wives? We knew he had at least two beforehand. But here we find out he married even more women off screen, including a princess. And what we're seeing here is that David is politically savvy. He's a smart guy. He's marrying people, okay, marrying women who are connected to powerful people. He's making alliances. He's making sure that he's consolidating his, his power. And this increases the chances, too, that he will have more sons. So it's really a win-win. It's the smart thing to do. But turn with me to Deuteronomy 17 real quick. I, I got to show you this. You got to see it. We've been here before, but I want you to see it with, with your own eyes. Deuteronomy 17. Okay, this was something that was written way before David came on the scene. This was in the law of God given to Moses. See, the thing is, while it is good to have many children, no one disputes that. Okay, children are a blessing. Sons are a blessing to a king. All of that. David does have a lot of wives, and this is a problem. Look at Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. Before Israel had a king, God told them how they should choose a king. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only, pay attention, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. He shall, not, he shall not acquire many horses, many wives, much gold. Three things. Now, that is somewhat objective. How much is too much gold? How many wives is too many wives? As we've talked about, the, uh, the law of Moses never explicitly says that polygamy is a sin. And yet, even though polygamy is never explicitly banned according to the Torah, even though it's never said to be wrong outright according to the Old Testament, the Old Testament always shows that polygamy is bad. It's not banned per se, but it's always shown to be bad. And the warning is specifically here for kings. Now you can go back to Second Samuel 3, I just wanted you to see from the word of God. But 2 Samuel 3, turn back. What do we see in this list? If you had to choose, do you think David is caring at all about second or Deuteronomy 17? Does it seem like it or not? Does David seem to be all that concerned with what God has to say about what a king should be? See, there's a contrast here. There's a tension. David is growing stronger, sure, but his dynasty is starting to look more worldly than what we might have expected at this point. The foundation has some cracks. And it's not just looking back at the law in Deuteronomy uh, 17 that tips us off that something's wrong. If you look ahead in 2 Samuel a little bit, if you read this book, some of you told me that you read through the whole thing, so spoiler alert. Um, but if you haven't, I'm just going to tell you just a little bit, a little hint, a little trailer of what's going to come these sons, in particular, are going to cause David some of the hardest times in his life. You thought things were bad with Saul, and they were. But people like Absalom and Amnon, they're going to make David's life a living hell. And that's almost, that's barely an exaggeration. Amnon will forcibly violate his half-sister, Tamar. And we'll get there. You might want to put your kids in children's ministry that day. But he will do that. And that'll set up a chain reaction of problems. Because Tamar is full siblings with Absalom. And Absalom is a great warrior. Absalom is a hothead. And Absalom takes his revenge and he murders his brother in cold blood. After he does this, it causes tensions between him and his father. And he tries to forcibly take the throne from David. See, the problem with having so many wives, you got to understand this, among many problems, is that you have a lot of firstborns, and that's what we're seeing here. And all of them are going to feel like they have a place on the throne in some sense. All of them are going to feel like the kingdom should belong to them, at least a little bit. 
In fact, at the very end of this book, what we're going to see is God chooses. David doesn't choose. God chooses which son will sit on the throne. It's not even one of these guys. It's a son that hasn't even been born yet. A guy named Solomon might have heard of him. And yet, even though God chooses Solomon, Adonijah, as the oldest son left, he tries to take the throne for himself. And the tragic irony of this passage, okay, is that all these guys fight to be king. And yet it turns out that none of them get the kingdom. And this is the issue. This is the issue. This seemingly random passage in the beginning of this story, this break that seems to have no place here, it opens up the issue that we're going to see in the story after this with Abner and with David. It's not Amnon's kingdom. It's not Absalom's kingdom. It's not Adonijah's kingdom. It's not Saul's kingdom. It's not Ishbosheth's. It's not even David's kingdom at the end of the day. It's God's kingdom. It's why we call this series King of Kings. Because God is. Right? You've sung these songs before. You've heard that saying. God is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And David at his best, he recognizes this. That even though he is a king, he is still servant to the true king. But here we see David more at his worst, doing whatever he wants, not obeying the explicit command of his king, and everyone ends up paying for it. You might wonder, what does this have to do with us? I'm not a king. I'm not the son of a king. Well, when I was in college, I was a major. uh, I majored in English literature um, because I wanted to be poor. Um, But anyway, I majored in English literature, and we read a lot of books, like a ton of books, um, and a lot of times what happened was uh, we would read like 10 books per class. Um, so you were just like skimming through. I'm just turning the pages, right? I'm not even reading them. But there was one class where we just read one book. And it was a class on John Milton's Paradise Lost. You guys know it? Have you heard of it before? It's an epic 12-section poem, really. And, and it retells in artistic and dramatic form the fall of mankind, starting with the fall of Satan from heaven. It's an interesting book. And one of the most interesting things about it is that a lot of our kind of popular conceptions of what heaven is like and hell is like and what Satan is like, they actually come from this poem. That's how it's influenced popular imagination even to this day. For example, one thing that a lot of people think that's not in the Bible is that Satan reigns over hell. God reigns over heaven. Satan reigns over hell. He's the king of hell. That's not true at all. Okay, Satan is not the king of hell. But where it comes from is maybe the most famous line in the entire poem in Paradise Lost. And I want to read this line to you. Hear this. You might have heard this before. Satan, after he wages war against God and loses and falls from heaven, he's cast out with a third of the angels. He says this line to justify himself. He says, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. That's his heart right there on a plate. Better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. I'd rather go to hell than have to be a servant of God. Now, he doesn't reign in hell, but you can see why some people get that idea from that saying. He's being completely transparent about why he would start this hopeless suicide war against Almighty God. He knows he can't win. It's just he doesn't want God to be his king anymore. And while this line is fictional, okay, I'm not saying that this is scripture or anything, it captures the essence of sin doesn't it? Because if you actually read the scriptures, if you read the source material, and the book is better than the other book, I guess, but the original is better, what do we see when the serpent tempts Eve? He says, if you eat of the forbidden fruit, you will know for yourself good and evil. He says, if you eat of this fruit that God told you not to, you will be like God. Disobey him. There's truly nothing new under the sun. The war between the sons of David, the war between David and Abner, we're going to see in a sec, the war between Satan and heaven even, this is the same war that Adam and Eve lost in the garden. And the same war that wages within the hearts of every single human being today, which is, who will be king? Who's going to reign? Who's going to be in charge? And this is where we start. Be honest. Be honest with yourself. You don't have to tell me. You don't have to raise your hand, but be honest with yourself today. Who really reigns over 
your heart? Who's in charge of you? Who is your king at the end of the day? Have you ever thought about it like that? Who gets the final say? Who determines your direction in life? Who can tell you no? Who can change the way that you're living? You might want to do something, but can anyone tell you no? If no one can tell you no, if you don't listen to anybody but yourself, then guess what? In your mind, you have set yourself up as your own king. And this leads to the second point. The sons. Why are the sons even in here? They make us think about this issue of kingship. Now we go a level deeper, the switch. And this takes us to the level of our motives. Now, we really pick up the story here in verse 6, if you read it. Well, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner, pay attention, was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Real quick, Abner, he's Saul's cousin, first cousin. They are close. They've been together basically all of Saul's kingship. And now that Saul is gone, Abner has tried to keep the train going. He has put Saul's last and weakest son, Ishbosheth, on the throne. And while Ishbosheth wears the crown as Saul's only remaining son, it's obvious to everybody that this guy can't cut it. And Abner's the real muscle here. Now look at verse 7. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Now, okay, real quick, a concubine was basically another wife. Okay, another wife, she just didn't have the same rights and privileges and the same status in the household as a wife, which was kind of a bad deal, objectively. But a lot of concubines had no choice. And the thing is, concubines were kind of symbolic in the kingdom. See, Saul had this concubine, not Abner, not Ishbosheth, but Saul had one named Rizpah. And the accusation is that Abner has had relations with her, that he has gone into her. And this is bad on multiple levels. It's not his concubine. It's his cousin's concubine, gross. But on top of this, okay, the real reason why this is an issue in the story, the bigger story, is because to go into the king's concubine was an act of aggression. Okay, this is what conquering kings did to vanquished kings. They would take over the harem, to put it bluntly. Okay, that's just what's going on here. It was a move for the throne in a sense. It was Abner saying, if he did it, it was Abner saying, I'm the real king here. So Ishbosheth gets this, but Ishbosheth is a weak man. His name literally means man of shame. We learn from Chronicles, if you read that far, that that's not even his real name. They just called him Ishbosheth. How sad is that? Ishbosheth is so weak sauce that he just asked Abner, Why are you being so messed up toward me? Verse 8. And Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers, to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. Veiled threat. I could have just handed you over to David anytime I wanted. I didn't do it. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. A woman. Abner is a, what they, they call ticked off here. Um, but he goes kind of nuts, right? He says, am I a dog's head? And in those days, dogs were not like the cute household pet. They were like a dirty street animal. So he's kind of talking about disgusting things. And he's saying, why are you treating me like trash after all that I've done for you? And if Abner is innocent, I mean, come on, this is the most annoying thing of all time, right? You've been fighting this war that you can't win. You've been trying to protect this guy who is too weak to stand up for himself. You've been trying to be loyal and nothing but faithful to the house of your cousin. And this guy just accuses you of this. But look at what he says. Or rather, look at what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, why are you asking me this? I didn't do it. <laughs> I mean, imagine if someone said, uh, why, why did you cheat on me? Your wife or your husband. If you didn't do it, you'd say, I didn't. You wouldn't say, why are you bringing that up? After all I've done for you, I mean, I took out the trash all these times. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, we don't know what happened. But either way, Abner has enough. And the reason the text doesn't go into the details, is Abner guilty or not, is because as far as the text is concerned, it doesn't matter. That's not what Abner did that matters here. We're trying to get deeper. It's how Abner responds. Look at verse 9. 
Abner doesn't just say, I'm done, but this is what he says. He says, God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. So Dan was in the north, far north, Beersheba's in the south, the entire entirety of Israel. Verse 11, and Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So Abner's done. He swears on his life that he will accomplish for David what God swore to David. Now, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but it's important that you guys know this right now. What Abner says here is damning to him. Because maybe you could forgive him for trying to be loyal to his cousin, right? Trying to just be a good guy to his family. Maybe he didn't know that David was supposed to be king. But right here, he admits it himself. He says, I'm going to do what God told David all those years ago. He knew that God's will was for David, and he rebelled against him anyway. But then Ishbosheth asked him a reasonable question, and all of a sudden, he's decided to completely change. And you might think, wow, repentance is awesome. Praise God. Abner sees the light, and he becomes a different person. But is this repentance? What do you think? Turn with me to Luke 15 real quick. Keep your place here, but I want to show you this by way of contrast. Luke chapter 15. We need to see something. Abner can be confusing at first. I remember reading 2 Samuel. I didn't know if Abner was a good guy or a bad guy, especially after next week. And you'll see what I'm talking about. Like, How are we supposed to think of Abner? Why is Abner even given so much screen time? The thing is, when you get beneath the surface a little bit, there's a powerful lesson to be learned about self-deception from Abner. But we might not see it clearly just from this text. So it helps maybe to see it in stark contrast to maybe the best example of true repentance in the entire Bible. Luke 15, look at verse 11. A familiar story, but I'm just going to point out a couple things. Luke 11 Uh, 1511, excuse me. And he said, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. You know the story, right? If you know any story in the Bible, this is one of the ones you know. The prodigal son, he cares not one iota for his father. He leaves home on his own volition. He wastes everything on nothing. And like a fool, he has nothing left, not even enough to eat, and he hits rock bottom face first. And as a Jew who would have avoided pigs and other unclean animals his entire life, this is terrible. All he can find to do is feed pigs. And he's so hungry. I mean, this is how bad it is. He's so hungry that he wants to eat the swine slop. I mean, this is a picture of people who run away from God, who ruin their lives who do every disgusting, miserable thing you can imagine. What we see here is this guy, it's humiliating, it's pathetic, it's degrading. But then something happens, verse 17, a realization. But when he came to himself, you see that? He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. From this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. And we often preach this passage as a powerful picture of the Father's lavish love. Do we not? And it is. Don't get me wrong. 
There is mercy and grace and forgiveness. There is a powerful compassion in here. This is how great God's love is towards sinners. You can completely ruin your life, but God is so good that if you come back to him in repentance and you acknowledge that you are someone who doesn't deserve him at all, he will give you everything. It's a beautiful picture of God's love for us. But did you notice what the son said? He said, Father, I have what? Father, I have sinned. And this is why he comes back. He comes to himself because he realizes, I have made a terrible mistake, and it is my fault. Now contrast that with Abner. 2 Samuel 3, go back there. Why does Abner decide to return to David? Why? Why does Abner all of a sudden start talking about what God's will is? Is it because he's realized that he's been in the wrong this entire time? Is it because he's realized that David should be king and it's the right thing to do? Is there any remorse? No, not even one iota. This is not a trick question. Abner does not turn to David because he's been convicted that this is the right thing to do. No, he turns to David because it now suits him. It agrees with him. He's tired of Ishbosheth, so he's going to give David a try. It's understandable. Ishbosheth is pretty lame. It makes sense. David is growing stronger. The writing is on the wall, but who is Abner about? Look at verse 6 again. The Bible tells us early on, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the, in the house of Saul. He's been making himself, himself. Abner has always been not about the house of Saul or the house of David. He's always been about the house of Abner. You see that? And this is what we have to learn from Abner. We can do the exact same thing. Look, if you're someone who's been super far away from God, and you know you made a mess out of your life, you have to know that the grace and mercy of God is so long that it can reach you anywhere. And if you're here and you're broken over your sin, then there is good news for you. But a lot of us, we're church people. A lot of us, yes, we turn to the house of God. Right? We say, okay, you know what? My life, okay, I want it to be about God. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to serve. I'm going to do all of these things. And sometimes that's the most dangerous place to be. Because what we're doing, we're not pulling a prodigal son. We're pulling a Abner. This is not outright rebellion. This is something far more insidious. We're on the outside, we turn to God. But on the inside, we're still just doing whatever we want. I mean, if you want to get real, okay, this is just a theoretical example. It's the worship leader, right? I mean, you would think that the worship leader, the one who is leading everyone in song, singing about how great God is, closes his eyes, he sings with all the breath in his lungs, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. And yet, what if he even though he's singing those words and he's closing his eyes and he's playing guitar, even though everyone respects him, what if in his heart he is only thinking about how are people perceiving me? People think that I'm really good at music. What if he wants people to say at the end of it, man, that was a powerful set. You are anointed by God to do this. See, if that's the case, who is really sitting on the throne? And not just to pick on worship leaders, preachers, for sure. We preach about the glory of God, how great God is. And then we wait afterwards to steal a little glory for ourselves. Like, so what do you guys think about the sermon? You like it? And they're like, oh, it was pretty good. And you're like, praise me. I mean, praise God. All glory to God. And it happens in other ways. Christians become Christians because it suits them. Christians in name. In other words, they find some friends who they click with, so they come to church. They like conservative, maybe family-friendly, traditional values, so they join up. 
They enjoy serving the community. And these things are fine, okay? These are part of the Christian faith. But what happens when God asks for your heart? And you see it happen a million times where someone seems to be on fire for God because they like all the outward things. But when God challenges them, when God speaks to them, when the word of God calls them to account for their sin, how come you keep doing that? How come you care so much about this thing that the Bible says you shouldn't care so much about? They say, I'm out. Just like Abner said he was done with Isposheth, you see people just saying, I'm done with God. Why? Because it was never about God. It was always about them. Look, the question isn't just, do you do things for God? We can talk about that. Your actions matter, okay? They do matter. But today we're talking about motive. You can show up. You can do all the things I'm telling you to do. You can try to be a better parent or a better kid. You can try to be a better husband, better wife. You can serve. You can learn theology. But at the end of the day, this is the question. Who is really sitting on the throne of your heart? Because you can trick me. You can trick everyone else. But you can't trick God. Abner looks like he switches teams. But the truth is for him, he never did. It was never Team team Saul or Team David. It was always Team Abner. What about us? What about us? And this leads to the third and final point quickly now. The servant. The servant. And this points us, the servant, he points us ahead to the only one who can truly help us. And this is the shortest point by far. Okay, just letting you guys know in case you were worried. Look at verse 12. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. I mean, you can detect how full of himself Abner is. I will accomplish this for you, David. Now, God, it'll be me. And he said, good. David said, good. I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring me Cal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michal, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Excuse me. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go return, and he returned. Now, there's a lot going on here, but basically this is a mess, and we'll talk a little bit more about Michal later on in this book. But this goes hand in hand with how David has been acting. David has a wife problem. Okay, and this will come back to bite him in huge ways later. But Michal is actually his first wife, if you guys remember. And the thing about her is that she is Saul's daughter. But because Saul was persecuting David, wanted to kill him, David ran away, and Michal was still at home. And Saul actually gave her to someone else. He married her off to someone else. And it's this huge mess. She's married to two people. But David wants her back because it's smart. If you notice, the text says specifically that David mentions Saul's daughter. David's thinking, you know, politically, right? If I am married to Saul's daughter and people are reminded of that, then they'll see me as a legitimate ruler of all Israel. He wants to make his claim even more strong. Now notice how David just talks about the price he paid for her how he talks about the politics of it, who she is related to. And then notice how her new husband, who is collateral damage here, how he's all crying. It's kind of sad, but he's all weeping over her. And the contrast is meant to be stark. David is thinking only in terms of how he can consolidate power, but her actual husband, you could say, is thinking in terms of love and relationship. Now, there's a lot to be said here about David's weaknesses and the callous way in which real people like Paltiel and Michal are hurt by the decisions of others. But we've talked about these things before, and we'll talk about them again. The text is actually moving us in this direction toward Abner and David's confrontation. Look at verse 17. Abner has another meeting first. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Okay, so... Abner admits something even worse here, too. For a while now, not only has God wanted David to be king, but everyone's wanted it, okay? He's been standing in the way, verse 18. Now then, bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, that's Saul's tribe, 
And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. So Abner, before he meets David, he convinces everyone else, okay, we're going to go to David now. We're done with Ishbosheth. Even Saul's tribe, Benjamin, agrees. And just like that, it happens real quick. You have this unified kingdom. What's going on here? In simple terms, God's plan. It's not Joab's army that wins the kingdom. It's not this endless civil war that's been going on. It's not David's political savvy. Definitely not. It's definitely not Abner's pure-hearted motives either. God works it all out for his purposes. And see, Abner, if you look at the text again, he speaks better than he knows. He says, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people. He's quoting God. But see, this is how it always works. God is always working. If there's one thing that we see in the books of First and Second Samuel, it's that God doesn't have to do miracles to work. God works through all sorts of different means. He works through people, some who have good motives, some who have bad. God is always working through people, through us, and he uses imperfect servants, even enemies like Abner. God is that great of a king. And so the question is never, will God's purposes come to pass? No, that's never in question. The question actually is, what side are you going to be on? And keep this in mind throughout this book. What side are you going to be on? Because it's not going to change God's plan at all at the end of the day. It's just going to change your destiny. What side are you going to be on? What side are you going to choose? Are you going to fight the king kicking and screaming? Or are you going to serve the king? And if you're going to serve the king, Are you actually going to do it from the heart? Or is it going to be fake? David, we mentioned his faults, but it's important to zoom out for a moment. Because the truth is, he is a man after God's own heart, even though he's not perfect. And while he messes up a lot, he always seeks to be God's servant, though he falls. And we see it right here in verse 20. Okay, this is not a throwaway verse. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, when they finally meet, Face to face, David, what does he do? He made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. David welcomes this man, okay? Understand this, this thorn in his side, the guy who stood next to Saul when Saul tried to murder him, the man who killed his nephew, Asahel, he welcomes him with a feast. And you might say, he's just being political again. Look, okay, it's not like the choices are kill him or feast. He could have been polite. But he welcomes him warmly. He goes out of his way. And here we see that the servant is actually much like the king. Because what do you call it when you give someone what they don't deserve? Grace. Verse 21. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go. And will gather all Israel to my lord the king. That they may make a covenant with you. And that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away. And he went in peace. Here's the truth. Abner's not a good guy. He's not. Take it to the bank. He doesn't have good motives. But David prepares a feast for him, extends the olive branch, and shows kindness, just like how God does to us. And what does the Bible say? Romans 2, 4, God's kindness is meant to lead us where? To repentance. And Abner, it's kind of interesting, this bad guy says something he never said before. He calls David, my Lord the king. Not just I'll serve David, I'll just do what's best for me, but he says, you know what? I will do what you want, David. A little heart change? Maybe. We don't get to see a lot more of Abner. We'll see it next week why that happens. But the grace of God, seen in the grace of his servant David, is powerful. And we'll close with this. We'll close with this. We never finish the parable The thing is, we call it the parable of the prodigal son, and it is so powerful. Maybe the most powerful of Jesus' parables. It's definitely the most in-depth. But it begins with these words. Not that there was a prodigal son, but there was a man who had two sons. Two sons. The father had another son. The story isn't over. And this older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. 
And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf. Now the fattened calf was specially fattened up for special occasions because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. He didn't want to come inside. His father came out and entreated him. Hey, step inside, step inside. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. See, the older brother represents a different kind of person, a different kind of lost person. And in some ways, maybe even more lost because of the lostness, the brokenness. It's not obvious for everyone to see like it was for the prodigal younger brother. It's on the inside. He says, I never disobeyed you. I always did what you wanted. I was always here at home. I always served you. In the Greek, it's interesting. He uses the word not just for a a household servant, maybe of some ranking, but he uses the word for slave. I've been slaving for you. No firstborn son would ever be treated as a slave in that society. Never. But that's how he interpreted it. I never wanted to do these things, but I did it so that you would give me what I wanted. I did so much for you. And the forgiveness and grace that the father showed the younger brother, it's too much. And the older brother is furious and confused. The ugliness within his heart is pouring out. And he says, but when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And that's it. This guy's a sinner and you're going to bless him? He is so blind to his own heart condition that he has been just as bad inside. And this is where it connects with maybe many of us. Maybe most of us. I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but even for you Christians here, for those of you who have grown up in church, who are religious, how much of the religious things have you done? How much of them have been for you. How many times have you prayed to God, God, I've done all these things. I don't understand why you're not answering my prayers. How come you haven't given me the things that I desperately desire? How many of us have served because it suits us? How many of us have led because we want people to see us as great? How many of us are waiting at the door, wanting people to thank and praise us? Maybe we've done it today. Maybe even in the songs we sang, we were only thinking about our people hearing my beautiful voice. That's what I always think. It's in us. And maybe you're seeing it right now. And that's why we have Abner. We're supposed to see Abner as a reflection of us. The word of God is a mirror. And if you're seeing maybe a little bit of that ugliness, that Abner fakeness, that older brother ugliness in your own heart, understand what the will of the father is. And he said to him, to this son who says terrible things to his father, he says, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. What did the text say? He entreats him to come inside, step inside. None of us are perfect. Who here has always had perfect motives? None of us. David is a man after God's own heart. Remember what I said, David, the point of second Samuel is to show us that he's better than any of us. And yet he's not enough. He's not good enough. David points the way to his greater son, the greater servant, Jesus Christ, the final king of Israel, the true heir, the firstborn of all creation. He came into the pigsty of our world. And what did he do? He prepared a feast for us. He extended the olive branch, showed kindness, a compassion that cost him his own life. And yes, he did say, take up your cross and lay down your life. But you got to understand that's in response to what he already did. The promise is, yes, you will lose your life, but then you will truly find it. So here's the thing. Today's the day to stop playing games, whether in a big picture sense or in a small picture sense. Today's the day to check your motives and to repent of them, to vacate the throne of your heart. Don't even leave a little bit of your leg on it. Just get off. 
Today's the day to resolve to stop merely going through the motions as if that could ever be enough. Today is the day to step inside. Bow to your king. Today is the day to turn to your father. Step inside. Will you pray with me? God, as we read in the scripture reading, you call us to return to you. And not just to rend our garments, not just to go through the motions of saying sorry or or pretending to be different, God, but I pray, God, that we would rend our hearts. And God, we know that you are gracious and that you are merciful. And I pray, Father, for every single person in this room. I pray for myself. But I pray that we would be struck afresh with the immensity of your greatness and mercy. I pray that we would have ears to hear your entreaty to step inside, to come back home. And God, I pray, God, that we would be different because of people like Abner. God, at the end of the day, you can do anything you want. You don't need us, but you call us to yourself. So God, I pray that heart and soul, we would return to you for our good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.